Hello and welcome back to Perspectives. Today's guest is Michelle van der Venter. She's a triathlete competing in half and full distance Ironman events, which for those who are not familiar is a 3.8km swim, 180km bike ride and then a marathon to finish. In this episode, Michelle and I discuss how to structure a training plan to improve endurance, why goal setting beats motivation, the importance of correct preparation, if using data is a help or a hindrance, and much more. For anyone looking to get fitter and improve endurance, this is an episode filled with useful strategies to not only get started, but to improve as well in as little as three sessions a week. Michelle's very, very knowledgeable. She has multiple wins under her belt as well, competing in both the half and the full Ironman distances. And there is a lot to learn from this episode. So I hope you enjoy Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I have seen that you've had multiple wins under your belt competing in triathlon and Ironman events. Can you tell us about the journey from 2018 when you got started and where your sort of interest in triathlon came and, and how it all came about? Yeah, sure. So um, so generally from my side, it all started with literally just buying a bicycle so that I could commute in and out of work. Um realized that actually I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that element of it. So um, yeah, I found my commutes getting longer and longer, even though my um, my job and my house was exactly the same <laughs> distance. Um, and then, yeah, from there, um, heard somebody talking about swimming, thought actually, you know what, I kind of know a little bit about swimming. And I just heard about this thing called triathlon and I thought, actually, you know what, this sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a really good challenge. So decided to give one a go. And um, yeah, and it was just, you know what, went in absolutely, completely underprepared. Oh, the first one was just horrendous, but it was so much fun. The The entire day was just brilliant. I had to walk sections of the run because I just wasn't, I wasn't fit enough. So, um, but I ended up walking with various random people from all walks of life. And as we were walking up this hill, I was just chatting to everybody as we went along. And, um, and the camaraderie that you experience in the triathlon is second to none, no matter if you're doing well and winning or if you're, you know, one of the final ones to finish, you all having the same day out. And it was just, it was absolutely wonderful. You get to high five everybody, you get to chat to everyone. It was just such a wonderful experience. I just kind of fell in love with all of it all in one go. So yeah, so that was my my baptism of fire, if you like, <laughs> back in 2018. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it. So you you're quite into Ironman as well so that's triathlon on steroids basically can you tell us a little bit about what an Ironman involves as well and your most maybe your most recent events uh yeah sure so um so basically an Ironman if anybody doesn't know so it's a triathlon it's a long distance or endurance triathlon and really what that is is it's a 3.8k swim it's a 180k bike and then it's a full marathon to finish um, so it's quite a long day out you earn your land really yeah. <laughs> Um, you'll also often hear about something like a 70.3, which is the half distance, and it's each of those distances quite literally halved. And for those, you generally try and be done by lunchtime. So it's 
you'll, you'll quite soon realize everything in triathlon revolves around food. So I've seen you get like a finishing pint as well on Ironmans. I, I always see that when people have finished, they get like a massive pint, which is which is nice. Yeah, if you, um, yeah, so at, it was quite surprisingly. So some of them you get, so if you're on the podium, you'll get a bottle of champagne to spray over each other. So in in France, actually, weirdly, we got a pint instead of a, instead of eight. So really? that's one of those. Off. I, I genuinely expected France to be more wine based than beer, but hey ho, it's still good fun at the end. Excellent. Yeah. So they all sound like obviously that that distance sounds extremely long. Can you describe the feeling that you had when you completed your first full Ironman? Definitely say absolute elation. So. I, I can't I can't describe how happy you are and just also how proud you are of just getting to that finishing line. There's so much that goes into it. So uh, as you say, it's such long distances. On you never guarantee to finish. So even you, you can be doing incredibly well, you can feel fantastic all the way up to the very final five Ks. And when you hit that last one kilometer mark, you just go, actually, I might finish this. And then you start getting excited. And when you actually hit that red carpet and you finish and you go through the line, you, it's just, it's the most elating feeling you could ever have because you've done, you've achieved this incredible achievement. And from well, the, the company that I keep, we've, um, so we have a very, very good training squad with us. I tend to compete in a lot of the events that the others are also competing in. We tend to influence each other to compete in similar events or similarly timed events so that we can support each other both through the training and also on the day. And just seeing them at the finishing line, so even the guys who weren't competing on the day, they're all in the finishing line. Having my coach and I train alongside a professional athlete as well, they had already finished on the day so they were sitting on the background waiting for me to kind of come through the line and gave me a hug and it's just that what felt like what's probably only one minute, I can probably describe to you over the course of half an hour. <laughs> it's but that feeling that you get is is absolutely indescribable. One of those ones where you cannot describe it unless you've actually experienced it for yourself. Absolutely. So you're telling me you're telling me that I need to run an Ironman and do the whole event for me to to get an idea of what you're saying. Well, you know, we'll we'll start you off in small <laughs> chunks, but yeah, absolutely. But I don't see why not. So you mentioned about sort of different of different stages. The thing that stuck out to me is the, the mental fortitude that you, you must need to be able to keep going with this. And we've seen it quite recently in the London Marathon. There was the female winner, Sifan Hassan. Uh, we saw her with sort of footage of her struggling with cramps a couple of times throughout the race. And it looked like she was, you know, that everyone was saying in the commentary, oh, she should stop. She's going to hurt herself. It's all this sort of stuff. So... She then obviously pushed through that and managed to take the win. So how do you keep going when everything else is telling you to stop? So generally, for most part of it, I would say that if you're well-trained, you you have a good idea of what those boundaries are. And come race day, you're really hoping that you can push the limits of that boundary. And that's what you're really looking for. So within training itself and the amount so it'll probably shock some people how much training I put into it um, and how many hours I dedicate to it (laughs) but realistically to be at that level and to be able to push yourself to that very edge of the boundary you've practiced it a few times so 
if if you're going through training and every single training session is good and you feel great in every single training session, you're probably not pushing hard enough because you're never really getting to that stage where you're going, oof, actually, I kind of have a bit of a stitch while I'm running today or, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. But actually learning how to work through those barriers and having a strategy for them, that's where that's what comes to play on race day. Because on race day, when you're pushing that boundary and you feel that stitch coming on, you go, oh, I remember having that at 5Ks on day X or on, you know, last Thursday. And I remember just changing my breathing pattern or I remember taking a sip of water. And then you try that and you go, oh, I really hope that works. And then it does work. Or sometimes it doesn't work and you just go, okay, well, I, I, took, a, I took a sip of water and actually it took another 2Ks to go. So then you just go, let's see how it feels over 2Ks. And But because you've practiced it, nothing really surprises you too much on the day. And that's, and it's the, whenever you see someone who's really hurting in a race, you know that actually, and especially I think the top performers within races, even when they don't look as if they're really hurting. So somebody like Kipchoge on a marathon, he never looks as if he's hurting and he's smiling away. But his strategy is actually, if I smile, I pretend it doesn't hurt. And and he always, and for me, I always, I always remind myself of just what a privilege it is to be on the race course uninjured, healthy enough to actually start the race that every time it hurts, I go, wow, actually, but hurting is a privilege. There's so many people that get injured during training that actually they just never make it to that day. So every time it hurts, you just have to remind yourself actually, yeah, but this is a privilege. This is what I'm really hoping for. I want to push that boundary. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And what you have to be accepting of is not every day is going to be a good day and not every race is going to go to plan. But if you've, if you've prepared well enough for it, then actually you'll never have a bad day out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I was listening to a, another podcast I listened to quite recently called Modern Wisdom. And I've been really interested about, you know, learning about resilience and discipline when it comes to training and things like that. He mentioned, there was a couple of things he mentioned that actually really stuck out to me. One of them you just touched on there was at some point, even if you're doing something you really love, at some point it's going to suck. So whether that's work whether it's building a business whether it's training for all the good times there are going to be bad times as well where you just gotta you know get your head down and try and push through it and the other thing that really resonated with me was he mentioned something about the point at which you want to stop is the point at which most other people will quit and by pushing past that point you're therefore setting yourself up for success and then you can outwork those other people does that resonate with you at all uh yeah to a certain extent you know what a lot of that actually does and Especially, you can't you can't expect to be a hundred percent disciplined a hundred percent of the time. At the end of the day, we're all human. There, there are going to be days where you know you have to get up tomorrow morning at five a.m. to make a swim session, but at the same time, all of your friends are going out for birthday drinks in the evening, and you have to make that choice of okay, well, I can go there, but I can only have a soft drink, otherwise I won't wake up and. Um, and you know, and I know I'm making that sacrifice, but I can go there and I'll be there for an hour and a half and I need to make sure I'm leaving on time to get enough sleep to get up in the morning for a swim. Or you just assess your goals and you change them and you say, okay, I'll swim at 10 a.m. But it does also mean that I'm not going to have a great lane time or something like that. But for me, it always comes back down to what your goals are. So, and it's having a strategy around those goals. So you can't do everything all the time. Um, that's I think that's the most difficult lesson that I've had to learn is prioritizing your time and prioritizing your efforts in the right place 
so that you're never forced into a situation where you're only relying on discipline because discipline is the first one to go. So for instance, at the moment, so I raced Lanzarote quite recently. And at the moment, I've actually, I've taken a bit of time out. I took some time out from a career perspective in order to concentrate on that race. But I gave myself the option that actually once I've done that race, I'm giving myself six weeks to actually have a look back at my career again and also give my body that downtime it needs to recover and just de-stress the body again. So in that way, I can make sure that actually I have a balanced lifestyle and I've got the balance within my both my training discipline, but also my whole life discipline as well. So there were a couple of things like my sister had a child just before I went down to Lanzarote. I didn't go and visit them purely because actually she's just been in a hospital. The risk of you getting ill after that is um, is quite high. So actually I said to her, you know what, as soon as we're back from Lanzarote, I'll come and visit you then. And it was brilliant because I didn't have any distractions off the back of that. So for me, it never felt like a sacrifice. But my goals were aligned to what my reality is as well. You can't always train, you can't always work. But if you have that balanced lifestyle, then actually it never feels like too much of a sacrifice at any given point in time. Yeah, that's interesting. See, I, for me, I find it quite difficult sometimes to persevere with things, just going back to the point on sort of like emotional resilience and things like that. And you said about having strategies are quite good and you know, it almost sounded like it was quite trial and error in the way it worked in that you you just got to try things and then if it doesn't quite work out, just slightly adjust your strategy and, and then try again. Yeah. For me, yeah, for, for me, it's, it's more of a case of like uh, when I'm working out or doing a hard workout and going out for a run and it's feeling a bit slow or if I want to do, you know, three miles or something or if I'm at the gym and I want, need to do 20 minutes and I get to 15, I'm like, oh, do I really want to do like the rest of it? And when you're on your own, it is quite hard for me personally. I'm sure this resonates with a lot of people as well. But when you're ready to sort of throw in the towel and you say about aligning with goals and things like that, do you find that those tools are quite effective when you're doing these sorts of things? And when your legs are hurting, your lungs are screaming, do you always look back on those goals and go, actually, I know why I'm doing this and this is why I need to carry on and push through it? Very much. And I'd, I'd probably say that goal setting piece right at the start, that's the only thing that gets you through some of those days. So, I mean, let's be honest, there is no ways that I would ever be waking up at 5am to make sure that I'm in the pool by, you know, by half five, six o'clock in the morning, if it wasn't for those goals. Um, and it's not because, you know, at the end of the day, I love swimming. I genuinely enjoy what I'm doing, but in the winter, when you have to de-ice your carb at about quarter past five, yeah. you have to make sure that you've got all of your breakfast prepped, you have to have everything in line. Yeah, it's not it's not going to be the most fun, but I also know that if I don't do that, then I can't realistically expect to be um, in a good position on the swim in three months' time when I do want to race. And I also know that I wouldn't be conditioned enough. So on those really dreary winter days where you're just thinking, oh, can I really not have extra half an hour sleep? You look at it going, well, actually, yes, you can. You can have your half an hour of sleep um, or you can not do that one last rep or you can, you know, finish early or just completely wipe out that session. But what that means is actually that, you know, you might not be prepared on time. So you might have to delay instead of racing in April, you may end up having to race in June or you might just not race that at all. And um, I, I remember once I, I got out of the um, I got out of the water early, 
because I was just having a I was having a bad day. Um, and I got out of the lake really early and I turned around and I went, oh, it must be the wetsuit's fault and it must be, you know, it's all of these other things that are wrong. And my coach actually turned around to me and went, well, if you don't really want to do the swimming, then you can always go and do duathlons instead. And I looked at him and I said, okay, right. And I got back into the lake and did Because, you know, at the end of the day, you always have an option. Yeah. But it is what your goal is. If my goal is to do a triathlon, I need to put in the hours into the swim. If I'm not prepared to do that, then, you know, there's other options out there. I could just be a cyclist or I could just be a runner. I don't have to be a triathlete. And being a triathlete, thankfully, doesn't define me. So if if at any point I ever decided to stop doing that, that would be okay. But my goals would have to align to it. So it's very much when you when you want to give up, you always remember actually is giving up the right thing to do. Because sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a case of, you know, I've I've started on a run before and I've just gone, I am too tired to do this. This is now an injury risk. And I just look at it going, actually, you know what the best thing for me today is stop the run, go back, have a meal, try and do the run this evening after I've recovered properly. And some other days you just go, actually, I've already been doing this for an hour where I may as well finish the last 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Talk to me about your training schedule then. What what does a typical week of training look like for you? So for me, it very much depends on the time of the season and also what race I'm preparing for. So if you're training for something like a full distance, you really are trying to make sure that you do at least, I'd probably say you're trying to do around about double the time that you're expecting to be out on the day. So that's not always feasible. So for me, I'm expecting to do an, a full distance Ironman in around about 10 hours. So anywhere between 10 and 11 hours. So I'd be looking at doing enough training that covers around about 21, 22 hours over the course of the week. If I was doing only half distance, then generally I can get away with around about 13 to 15 hours a week. And I've never actually done any races for less than that. I'm not quick enough. (laughs) Strangely enough, I'm quicker over longer distances, relatively speaking, than I am for shorter distances. I'm definitely not a sprinter. So yeah, so mine are anywhere between 15 hours and 22, 23 hours a week. That seems to be the, like, that, that seems to be the bandwidth that I work very well in and I can recover from. Generally, I do about four bike sessions a week four, maybe five, I'll do generally three runs. So runs are my lowest level only because that's the highest injury risk. It fatigues you quite a lot as well. You carry so much fatigue off the back of it. And then swim wise, I do try and swim at least once a day. If I have a low work schedule, then I'll try and swim actually twice in one day. Um, One is a structured session. The other one is a tech session. And that's just where I can do a swim session in the morning, do a bit of work from the gym, and then basically at lunchtime, go and get back in the pool and just work on some tech. So swims are definitely the most frequent, but it's also the lowest impact. So that's why we do that. And then, and also, and it gives you the biggest bang for buck as well. So you can, you can do so much in the swim with so little injury risk. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Bicycle wise, you're looking at, yeah pretty much four sessions a week. Most of them are around about an hour with one long session over the weekend when time allows. And then runs, literally just three runs. First, one of them being short, sharp sprint sessions. 
the other one being um, a more progressive aerobic run, and then the last one just being solid state, just very, very easy, what we call like a zone one easy run. So zone one heart rate, you don't go above zone one, it's just an easy run. And that that structure tends to work very well for me. In the off season, I'll add in strength and conditioning, but as we get to race season where the sharpness um, starts to increase, I take those SNC sessions away because I just don't want the DOMS. So that delayed onset muscle soreness, I don't want that to affect my aerobic training, which is why I, I drop that off as the season progresses more towards the race season. Excellent. The swimming element I've noticed is quite interesting because whenever I've swum or tried to swim properly, and that's like front crawl or breaststroke or anything like that, but mainly front crawl, one, I found it absolutely knackers you really quickly if you're not used to it and two it forces you to breathe in a certain way that's very different from the, the way you breathe on a bike or on the run in terms of you are putting your head underwater so you you physically can't take a breath without inhaling loads of water so do, do you incorporate any sort of breath work or anything like that into your training uh no actually no i don't um that's a good question um no no i haven't done any breath work actually um and it's interesting what you say about swim because it's um it's actually probably the most difficult part. So part of learning how to swim, especially as an adult, if you learned how to swim as a kid, you you'd find a natural way to breathe and a natural way to have a rhythm to your breathing. Whereas when you learn to swim with, as an adult, you're actually thinking about how you breathe, which is so unnatural. And you're trying to think of all these things. You're trying to think of how you can you think your way through swimming rather than feeling your way through swimming. And one of the, the biggest difficulties that I've actually had as learning to swim as an adult is not to think of swimming, but to feel the swimming. So actually just getting into that rhythm, just breathing quite naturally. So as you say, not, not having to think about how you're taking a breath, but just letting it be quite natural and smooth. And that's also why we do so much swimming. So my training program isn't any different to any of the other athletes that are within the groups that I swim with or that I train with, all of our training is actually very much structured around the same principles. And we all do swim pretty much five to seven times a week, not always together. There's three sessions that we do together and the rest of them you do as and when you can. But yeah, that's that's one of the biggest ones that we've had to learn is just how to how to feel more natural within the body of water. It's very difficult to do. You, you can only do it by practicing over and over and over again. Uh, I assume doggy panel doesn't cut the mustard anymore in triathlon. Oh, uh, you know what the worst is? That's actually one of my trolls. One of my trolls is, it? is actually <laughs> doggy paddle because it gives you a feel for the um, for how to catch the water in the front. And uh, oh my goodness, it's so tiring. I'm so glad that you don't have to do that. <laughs> Between Actually, that and butterfly. <laughs> who knew doggy paddle was still a thing? Oh, I know. There we go. You can, if you've learned as a kid, you, you're in you're in luck. You can carry on. Oh yeah, between that and polo players. Oh my goodness! I wish I'd done that as as a kid at school. <laughs> yeah, I've heard polo is quite brutal, actually. Horse polo. Yeah, that terrifies um, me. <laughs> you mentioned about zone one training earlier on, so I've noticed there's obviously been a huge increase in the amount of wearable tech that's available in the market now. You've got Apple watches. Most people seem to have an Apple watch these days. They've got whoop straps, which tell you obviously all the other metrics that you can get. I'm aware of many different training tools that you could use to structure your training and, and plan it. 
you mentioned zone training. I've heard of sort of the 80-20 split where you do sort of 80% of your training at a very easy pace, zone two, I think it is, and then 20% of your time at a higher intensity. Do you find data as a useful tool for training? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I'd probably say, so one of the things that when you train very consistently, you start realizing that data is all around you, but the one data metric that I that isn't able to be um, measured, I guess, scientifically, is just your rate of perceived exertion, so your RPE, and that's just on any given day, how are you feeling? And nobody can predict it, and nobody can tell you how you're feeling. So there's so much that leads into it. It's what you've eaten, how well you've slept, how stressful your day is, what you're one worrying about for your stressful day coming up. All of that affects how you feel in the session. And that in turn, so there's and there's quite a bit of research around it. I think it's Alan Watkins who talks around how you have how your feelings affect your emotions or how your emotions affect your um sorry, how your emotions affect your inner states and how that then has physiological effects. So Data, data itself and measurable data is brilliant because you can't deny it. You can't deny the fact that today I've only run at a pace of, I'm going to make up a number, five minutes per K. And yesterday I could run at a pace of four minutes per K on exactly the same course, something like that. So that can't, you can't step away from that finite detail. But what really matters is how did you feel? So if you felt if you felt as if you were working incredibly hard on that four minute per K and you couldn't do any more and you were absolutely pushed to the limit, but actually on the five minute per K, you felt as if you were just cruising along and it was absolutely wonderful and you were you were seeing the butterflies in the field kind of thing. <laughs> then actually, as long as that met your goal of, I want to work hard on day one and I want to enjoy it on day two, then actually that's fine. And that's that's where to me the, the individual data is, it's important so that you understand that actually if I push really hard, I can probably hit to four minute per K on an optimal day. But if I want to go and enjoy the scenery, then I'm gonna run at five minutes per K. And knowing that is, that knowing, knowing what those parameters are is very, very important. And it's also that to, to the point around training and 80, 20 training, structuring your training around that, that's enormously important. So for me, you can feel you can feel brilliant. So I've had days where I have felt absolutely brilliant, but my heart rate is really high. So my heart rate is, let's say, um, 10 BPM, 10 beats per minute below my maximum, which for me is working really hard. So that's saying that my blood is pumping really, really hard, but I actually feel really good. And I'm running relatively slowly. So for me, I'd be looking at that going, uh-oh, I need to watch out here. I'm running slowly. My heart rate is up. Even though I feel good, I might be carrying a lot more fatigue that my body is carrying much more fatigue than I think it is. So, and that could be just that I haven't recovered well, I maybe not slept well, or it could just be the data is wrong. So I could also look at it going, whoopsie, I put my chest strap on upside down and whoopsie, it's wrong. <laughs> I've not had 40, 40 coffees in a morning or anything like well, that. Well, my goodness, exactly. And, yeah, and actually, to be honest, like that's it's such a good point. So 
For instance, if I'm doing what I call it, so, and I'm enormously disciplined with this. So if I'm doing what I call a zone one run, so that for me is an easy run. It needs to feel easy. It needs to feel flowing. But my heart rate also needs to be within my zone one parameters. And for that, I cannot have a coffee in the morning <laughs> or I can't have a caffeine gel halfway through the run because the caffeine is going to shoot my heart rate up by 10 BPM. And I can't have that. So it's so and it's absolutely it's worth knowing actually what are all these factors that you need to consider. As long as you're looking at data holistically with everything in tow, then data can be enormously powerful and it's such a good tool. If you're only ever looking at one metric, it's terrible. It's a little bit like looking at your bank balance on any given day and saying, you know, you, you look at your bank balance on, on your payday and you go, oh, yeah, I'm rich. You look at your bank balance on the day on, you know, two days before you get paid and you just go, oh, my goodness, how am I going to survive? But you know that that's not true. That's only one data point within a variety of other factors happening. So if you think of training data in exactly that same way of, okay, that's one data point. What else have I do I need to consider? Then you can have a very healthy, balanced um, viewpoint within the data sets that you have. And one of the things to remember is that you don't you don't get good days and you don't get bad days. You just get days that don't necessarily meet your expectations. It all forms part of the journey. So as long as you don't get too caught up in the data, yeah, I I love data for that sake. But yeah, there are there are certain days where I don't I quite purposefully take a bicycle that doesn't have a power meter on, or I quite purposefully don't turn my watch on. I literally just know that I left the house at 10 a.m. I know the route is roughly 90 kilometers, and I came back at let's say 1 p.m. and therefore I've been out on the bike for three hours, and that's all that I need to know, <laughs> and I enjoyed it that type of thing. So because some days actually stepping away from the data is good. It's interesting you say that. I have a guest that I'm hopefully getting on in the next few months who is about that sort of stuff as well. He is a an ex-professional rugby player and he has developed this sort of way of training that doesn't really use data. So if he's using the rower, for example, he'll hide the screen and just go purely off feel because he says during his rugby days, the only metric you've got is time. You don't have all of this stuff where you have your heart rate available to you you only have how you're feeling on the day and how you're performing. And I think that's quite interesting because for me personally, I've noticed that when I'm going out and doing a run or something like that, if I look at Strava and it's, I feel pretty good. I did a run the other day and it felt quite good actually. And I then just habitually compare it to historic runs and go, actually, that was quite slow. And then you kind of feel a bit bad. But I know on that day, I couldn't have done any better. I paced myself well. I, I felt good and, you know, I didn't want to just push it because you end up as you say the the injury risk is increased and takes you a lot longer to recover i know when i've hit too uh, when i'm running too hard because i end up with this almighty wheeze for the next half an hour and i'm like what what is going on um don't have asthma or anything like that but i just get really wheezy and i know when i've pushed it too far so i think i think it's it's really interesting that you said about you know the use of data and how it can perhaps be a you know a tool that can be a bit of a blocker maybe yeah and and especially and you know what and there's certain days where you have to stress your body because if you're not if you're never incurring that stress you can never build the resilience towards it so those days where you push really hard and um, by all means yes you're going to be wheezing a bit afterwards 
Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you longer to recover. You probably need more food. You probably want to just, you, you can even, like, I tend to arrange a massage after a very big training load. Um, so anything like that, that's it's needed to be able to balance out the rest of it. But at the same time, you just can't compare that pace or that power data to an easier one. And also, and even things that, one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize as well is that any outdoor training, you have so many other factors as well. The course, if it's a little bit more hilly or a little bit more downhill, that will that will affect your pace. If it's a headwind or a tailwind, that will affect your pace quite significantly. So, um, so for instance, the race that I've just done at Lanzarote, it's one of my slowest race performance runs, but it was such a windy day. There was, as you said, there's nothing better I could have done. I was in the form of my life. And actually, relative to everybody else, clearly it was fine. It, it's, it was just, it's what we call, it's a slow day on the course. Every single person there was slow in technical terms, but it's a very windy, very, very dry, windy place. It's kind of, it's what you expect. So yeah, so it's, as you say, as long as you have a healthy balance towards that, it's, it's absolutely fine. And, and to the rugby player's point as well, it's very interesting what he said about that on the day, all that you have available to you is the time and how you're feeling and how you're performing. And in a race where there's so much going on around you, the in a training run, you might look at your watch three or four times every kilometer to check what your pace is. In a race, you may be checking once a kilometer, maybe only once when it's actually beeping at you, because the rest of the time you're checking where your competitors are, how's the wind blowing, what's the course coming up, do I know which corner to go around, all of that. There's so much going on that actually the data becomes irrelevant, and that's where that RPE element really kicks in. So in your training, you really want to tune into that RPE, and I completely agree with them. Where I've I've had days where like I'll just take my sleeve and just cover over my watch because I want to get used to not it does this feel um when I look back at it does it feel in line with what the parameters are stating that type of thing and are you happy with your performance when you're doing that sort of thing as well yeah exactly you mentioned earlier that you might get a massage off the back of a run or something like that so what else are your strategies for recovering from events like this um sleep <laughs> massive amounts of sleep I say sleep is your is your biggest. It, it's the most underrated tool that anybody ever has. And even at the moment, where as as I said earlier, I've I've kind of downgraded some of my training so that I I can do a bit more in the career side. Even mentally, just making sure that I always get a solid night's sleep. If I can't get a solid night's sleep, if I have woken up in the middle of the night, if the cats have decided to have a go at night and things like that, or something wakes you up. I'll at least try and take a nap in the middle of the afternoon. And that just means that actually my my mental state, my emotional state is fully aligned. It's fully tuned in. And actually, and then I tend to find that as long as my mental state is good, my body will do what I tell it to do, <laughs> so to speak, within reason. But yeah, I, I tend to find actually just pure, simple sleep and food, good, healthy, nutritious food. I don't have any significant nutrition principles i just believe in i eat until i'm full once i'm full i stop eating i don't i don't care if there's half a plate left or a quarter of a plate left or if i need to go back for seconds if i'm still hungry i'll carry on eating until i'm not hungry personally i work i know that that works for me 
but and I also eat very very slowly, so I tend to get full quite quickly. Yeah, um, I am the opposite of that. <laughs> I've been told off many a time for eating too fast. That's that's the caveat on that one of um, eating until you're full, because if you are a quick eater, actually, it takes about twenty minutes for your stomach to actually recognize any that it's gotten food in it. In which case, yeah, if you're a fast eater, don't listen to anything that I've said about nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> But generally, you know what, if I feel like a pizza, I'll eat a pizza. If I feel like a salad, I'll eat a salad. It's it's very much a case of you you tend to know what works for you as long as it's generally healthy. 80-20 rule. If 80% of it's healthy, don't worry about the one chocolate bar that you're going to have. Don't worry about the pizza you're going to have once a week. It's not the end of the world. If you're eating right, if you're sleeping right, you will recover properly. And then by all means, I quite like having a massage. Uh, not everybody does. Weirdly enough, there's not enough scientific evidence that a massage or a ice bath or any of these treatments actually work well. But the one that does work well is the one that relaxes you. So I tend to find that a massage, even a sports massage, which is horrendously painful, um, yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> I tend to find that I actually just sleep really, really well that night. Whereas a friend of mine, she actually, she's just getting into accusing now because she just loves being in a hot uh, in a hot tub. That's her way of relaxing. But she absolutely hates having a massage. She hates that somebody's going to be like touching her. She hates that she'll be lying on the table. So it's whichever one relaxes you. Whereas I just can't sit still for long enough to sit in a jacuzzi. <laughs> put it that way. Yeah, I'm I'm the same. I I can never sit still. I've got a, I'm far too fidgety. You mentioned uh, trying to get like a solid night's sleep. What 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 does that look like for you? To how many hours? Um, so I always aim for eight hours. I don't generally get that. So for me, I'll, and it used to stress me out, I'll be honest, but it doesn't anymore. So I've kind of, I've kind of realized that as long as I get eight hours over any 24 hour period, that seems to work really well for me. I really struggle to fall asleep before 9 PM because at the end of the day, I also have a, a full on normal job as well. So for me to get to, for me to finish work, have dinner, do all my training, get prepped for the next day, I just can't be done. I have not found a way of being done by 7.30. And then I kind of need 90 minutes to be able to just wind down from the day. So I tend to find personally, I'll be getting into bed around about nine o'clock, generally fall asleep within anywhere around about half an hour. And then I'm awake again the next morning around about five. So that gives me about seven and a half hours sleep. And I probably wake up once during the night. So at some, some nights I'll wake up, some nights I won't. And if I do wake up, then that's absolutely fine. It's just, you know, wake up and you go back to sleep. And if I don't fall back asleep again, then it's not the end of the world. I'll just kind of get up. I don't try and force the sleep. And I don't, I used to for, try and force the sleep. And I used to try and find a way to get back to sleep. And then you can just never, yeah, it just stresses you out and you can't get back to sleep. No, That's exactly. And you lie, you're lying there and you're trying desperately not to move because you don't want to wake the other person up. Whereas nowadays I just go, oh, okay, well, I'm awake. That's unfortunate. I'm going to get up, go make myself a hot chocolate, read my book for five minutes. Oh, I'm sleepy now again, go back to bed. And, you know, and work that, I find that works really well for me personally. If I don't, with, on any day that I don't have to be awake at 5 a.m., those are the days that I don't set my alarm. So on any day that I don't need to set an alarm, I won't, and I'll make the most use of that opportunity. So even over a weekend, if I have a full training day set up, I will try and align any of my training partners to be 
anywhere between. And I'll say to them, Let, why don't we message when we're awake? Because that just takes the pressure of having an alarm. Even if you've woken up for an hour or so during the night, you can just go back to sleep. You don't have the pressure of an alarm and you can generally, you know, wake up around about six, seven o'clock, which gives you that extra hour. Any bad night's sleep that I have, if I, if I genuinely, every now and again, you just have a night where you only sleep for three hours. And on those days, that's usually where I'll try and re rearrange my work diary so that I can work from home and I'll just go and take a nap during the day. So as, if I can, I'll take a nap. Some days you can't. They, sometimes you just have to be in the office. You just have to plow through. But those days I will, so, I will also go into the office and just say, guys, I might be a little bit tired today. So if I seem a little bit off, that's what it is. I just haven't slept well. But everybody then at least knows where they stand. It's not, nobody's guessing at, ooh, who's put her in a bad mood kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, have you read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep at All? Oh, um. Oh, I think I did. Is that the one that intros with, I hope I put you to sleep well when you read this? Is it a very scientific one? Yeah, it's quite sciencey. But Yeah. But in that, he talks about the concept of uh, sleep debt and how you cannot repay it, which once I read that, that was a bit of an eye-opener for me because there are days when you you think, oh, that's all right, I'll just, you know, I'll have a line at the weekend or, you know, I, I will just sleep longer for the next night. But that is not the way it works. Um, no. I, I don't know the actual science behind it, so I'm not going to start quoting it or anything like that. But if anyone's interested, I think it's a good book to, to read to sort of understand why we sleep effectively. An aptly titled book, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and especially, and it was fascinating on that one, actually, just um, the sleep cycles that you go through. So I'm always very conscious if I haven't had, if I haven't slept well between, I'm not too worried if I can't fall asleep, so if I can't fall asleep from, say, 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock, if I'm only falling asleep around about 11, I'm not too worried. But if I'm not asleep between that like golden hour between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., that's where I know, oh, I'm going to be so moody the next day. Yeah. Um, and it's just because you're not getting that REM sleep. But that book really helps you to understand which, which sleep cycles really matter. And even when, so if I take a nap, I won't take a nap after 2 o'clock. Because I tend to find that for me, if I take a nap after two o'clock, that actually delays me falling asleep that next night again. So yeah, so some of those I will just plow through. But even it, it's actually fascinating because even just things like um, his book made me change my coffee habits quite significantly as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's an interesting read. And I think he's done a few podcasts as well. So yeah, if, um, his book is meant to put you to sleep so feel free to listen to the podcasts. <laughs> I um I did decaf for 2 months in January. I dare say I was influenced by another podcast I was listening to but yeah I I found it helped and now I don't really drink caffeine all that much. I I try and do maybe every other day or if I'm you know really fancy a coffee at the weekend if not I just drink decaf coffee and I do think uh, I've noticed a difference in my sleep and my ability to get sleep because the half life caffeine is ridiculous it's like you shouldn't have caffeine after 12 i think because the half-life is so long that you know if you i see people at work having them in the afternoons and i think how do you actually get to sleep at night because you have coffee so late in the day there are people that have like four or five coffees a day and you just think damn a lot of yeah. caffeine <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's not even that it's just it, it's all of the knock-on effects as well it's um because if you're not, you know, if if you take if you're relying on the caffeine, then you're relying on the food, you're relying on the sugar, you're relying on all of these things. The knock-on effect is 
and it was quite eye-opening for me because I, I looked at it going, oh my word, I, I don't just have a bad coffee habit. I have a bad coffee and sugar habit and a bad sleep habit. And, you know, in all these things, it's um, like we call it sleep hygiene. And it is actually as good as like just general hygiene. If you're going to brush your teeth like that, why wouldn't you consider your sleep in the same way? So if I'm someone who's looking to improve their fitness, maybe get back into running or after some time off or I've just started running or cycling or swimming or any of the sports that we've mentioned earlier, where do I start? Oh, good question. So I suppose everybody has their a different background going into the sport. So it very much depends on what, what your background is. But let's pretend you're a complete novice. You never really did anything at school. Um, so... For swimming, my absolute recommendation, and this is considering that I didn't do this, but I have led the hard we'll way. learn from you. <laughs> learn from yes, your mistakes. Please. Do not make the same mistake as I did. <laughs> <laughs> Number one thing in swimming, get a coach. So absolutely 100% get a coach. Whatever you are doing in swimming, you most likely do it wrong if you haven't had, if you haven't got a coach. Even the good swimmers that I know of, um, even the guys that swam as like within counties at school, they still have a coach and they're usually the first ones to go and get a coach as well. And there's a reason for that. You will only make your life harder. And as soon as, as soon as you've built in a bad habit, you cannot get away from it. So it takes you longer to undo the bad habits in swimming than it does to teach you how to swim properly. So, and to put this into perspective. So a friend of mine and I started with my my coach at exactly the same time. I'd already tried teaching myself how to swim for the first six months, introduced all these bad habits. She was able to swim despite much less training. She was able to swim quicker than I was within three months, even though I was putting in double the work because I had to undo all the bad habits first. So that's my number one golden rule is swimming, get a coach. For Running and cycling, cycling is, there's very little joint impact. So on this one, you know what, if you have a turbo, that's brilliant because that allows you to have some structured sessions without having to worry about what the, what the weather is doing outside. But when the weather is nice, get outside and just go and ride your bicycle. Just get used to being on the bicycle. If you're feeling any, you shouldn't feel any joint pain or any discomfort on the bike apart from just getting normally fit. But if you're feeling any like sharp twinges, anything like that, get a bike fit just to make sure that you're not overstretching any of your ligaments and any of your joints. And I'll come into like session structure in a moment as well. So that's the bike. On the run side, build it up slowly. Like the one thing is build it up that even if you're only running 500 meters, just run 500 meters and do that three times in the week. So you just do a run-walk strategy. So run run nice and easily that you're not overstretching yourself. And when you get very tired, just walk. Do not, don't push it over that edge. And then over time, and you'll be surprised at how quickly you'll improve your fitness just by being consistent and by gradually building up the volume. If, you, if I haven't run for two weeks, considering I have five years worth of very consistent training background in me if I take a break from running for two weeks for any reason I will not run for more than 30 minutes on my next run back 
because I don't want to overstretch the joints. And that's after five years of experience. So, and no matter what, that is the discipline because I'd rather be able to run again in two days time than do something silly, not recognize that I actually have hurt my ligaments. And ligaments, you won't, you might feel a short, sharp pain on the day, but you'll probably find you'll feel it more about half an hour, an hour afterwards. Um, so you've got so much, so much joint impact. It's not worth the risk. So build that up slowly. A session structure over a week. I tend to do three different sessions. So my primary sessions are, and this is generally off season or when I'm not within the last three weeks before a race. Three weeks before a race, you're kind of sharpening up. Um, and it's a different structure, but my general base is one short, sharp session. So really hard. So you're looking at sprints on the bike. Or otherwise, I'll be looking at like two minutes of hard running, hard and controlled, but then four minutes of almost walking, like really easy jog. And then two minutes of really hard running, four minutes of easy jog. And then that that just kind of pushes up your aerobic threshold. So yeah, you're wheezing after those two minutes, but it's only two minutes. It's not the end of the world. And you're always in control. And same for the bike. It feels horrendous at the time, but you just go, oh, actually, I can recover from this because it was only you know, 30 second sprint on the bike, you know, two and a half minutes of nice and easy. So you're doing like these, like these big sessions. But the other session that I do is just one steady state. So just like a nice zone to, you can feel yourself breathing, but actually it's not, you, you can almost carry on for double the amount of time. So if I did that for an hour, I could, I could probably do it for another two hours kind of thing. You could carry on for it. Um, and then the last session that I do is what we call a threshold session. So that's proper upper aerobic. So you're working hard. And whenever, so whenever I'm doing this, um, my question to myself is always, can I hold this effort? Not the pace, not the power, not anything else. Just can I hold this effort? And I'm going, I don't know, maybe. Like if I'm thinking no, then I'm pushing too hard. If I'm going, yeah, probably I'm not going hard enough. But I'll be sitting there going, actually, I'm just trying to hold that effort for about 20 minutes. So I'll go out for a run. I'll do a nice warm up, go out for, you know, running for at least 20 minutes, build it up, hit that effort of where I'm going, mm, can I hold this? I'll lap my data, just go, can I hold this for 20 minutes? And I'll just do my best to hold that for 20 minutes. And every time I'm thinking, is this right? I'd be going, can I hold this? I don't know. I really hope so. Maybe. And if you're holding that, then you've got your threshold effort. So you're never panting, but you you are working quite hard. It should it should be uncomfortable, put it that way. But those are the three sessions that I do. And I do the same three sessions for the swim, the bike, and the run. So for all of those, my, my session, session structure, so to speak, is very much the same way. It's just that the intervals differ a little bit. So with, with the bike, where you don't have, we have so little impact, you can work really, really hard for 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, um, up to a minute. For a run where we're not trying to sprint, you're probably trying to hold that for more like two minutes at a time for those really hard sessions. For the swim, you're literally just doing one length max efforts and then three lengths really easy, that type of thing, um, just to get used to that. So, so yeah, so it's just the duration that changes between the three disciplines, but the the principle behind them is actually very, very, very much the same. To be honest, sounds good. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to plan my sessions out now. <laughs> actually, and that's, that's that's probably one of the things that most people miss. Actually, is um, is 
planning, and, and this is what a good coach would actually do for you, is um, they'll plan their, your sessions so that I never do I never do runs on consecutive days. So I'll never run on a Monday and a Tuesday. I'll run, say, for instance, on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and then I'll do another run either Saturday or Sunday. And I'll never do, like, most of my bikes are generally, like, a Monday, a Wednesday, a Friday. So I'm setting all of these up that, and I'll never do the hard session and then the threshold session after each other. I'm using that base aerobic steady state session as a middleman so that I have enough time to recover from a hard session, but not completely, not completely not do anything. So, but you kind of, you're bringing it up and you're coming down again, you're bringing it up and you're coming down and a very good coach will be able to work with you and also work around what your other goals are. So, you know, if you, if you have social events or if you have work commitments, you never want to be doing. So if I have a board meeting on the day, I will not do a hard session because I just don't want that fatigue. I need my mental capacity to be absolutely on point for a board session. But I'll happily do a steady state a steady state session in the morning because I don't need as much recovery for it. So yeah, so it's the planning that out is really important because otherwise you you're just going to get tired. And what you don't want is to be you never want to come off a session that you can't recover from. Because if you can't recover from it, then there was no point in doing it because it didn't probably help your fitness enough. You always want that just that ticking over, that drumbeat of some form of activity more often than not. I'd rather that somebody went a little bit easier and could recover from it than went too hard and had to take two days off from training or, or from any activity or just sleep for two days or just eat for two days because they went too hard in one session. And that's that's kind of the, the science of getting it right almost or the art of getting it right. That's interesting because you sometimes feel like if you're not running too hard like running hard then you don't feel like you're working enough or you know or advancing your fitness if you're not blowing or absolutely sweating by the end of the session so it's it's good to hear that you don't have to go so hard every session and you can structure it in such a way that if you're a bit savvy with it and a bit smarter you can train and still have you know the mental and physical capacity to do the other things in life that you want to do yeah Without being written off. Yeah, and and you know what? And one of the things that that I see people getting wrong quite often is they don't go easy enough in the easy sessions. If you're not if you're not going easy enough, you cannot do the hard sessions. So because you're just too tired, and it's a little bit like you can't write an exam every day. So if you couldn't write an exam every day, you can't go hard every day. It's the same type of principle of. You have to have a time for your for your body to recover from it before you can go hard again. And we see it over and over again that especially in running, and especially if somebody's running with another person, they always think that they have to keep up. And actually you don't. It's amazing how much just working at that zone one, that zone one aerobic fitness or aerobic heart um, heart rate, how much that improves your fitness. Over time, it's incredible. I, you, you get as much benefit of that, of doing that as a nice long session, as you do from any high interval session. And you get as much reward out of it as well. So it's, yeah, it, it always surprises me if somebody, you can't go hard if you haven't gone easy, put it that way. And even within the session itself, sometimes within an interval session where I'm trying to go absolutely max out, there's quite often where the session structure would be, I, I've aimed myself to go one minute hard, two minute easy. And I'll have a look at it and just go, you know, it's getting to one minute 45. And I'm just looking at it going, I'm still tired. 
I can't go again. Um, and sometimes you go, okay, well, let me try. Let me see if I can go hard again. And you just look at it going, nope, pace is off. That felt awful. I just couldn't work hard enough. And then I'll actually extend that rest. So I never, I never really change the interval, the hard interval duration, but I will extend the rest. So I'll put on like an extra 30 seconds rest and go, yep, I'm ready to go again. Now I can work hard. But if I can't work hard, if, if you're doing a hard session, you can't work hard, there's no point in doing the hard session because there's you're not going to get the maximum benefit out of it. Interesting. Okay. Let's wrap it up here then. Michelle, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. I've really enjoyed today. It's been very insightful and I'm going to take a few of these tips away and implement them in my training in, in the quest to get fitter this summer and hopefully maintain it basically. I'm, I fluctuate too much. I need to just be a bit more consistent with it. B- biggest tip there in winter is just find a really good group to train with um, and yeah and all of a sudden you don't actually mind getting up early or going out for a run in the in the rain it's um yeah it makes a massive difference but um yeah thank you so very much for having me on here today and hope yeah see you out there soon thank you very much cheers see you later bye